As we turn to Luke chapter 10 and continue on in the study of Jesus's life as well as his his journey to Jerusalem, we're going to be taking just a, a quick detour as we as he talks to a lawyer who's looking to um, certainly ask Jesus some questions and learn something, but also trap Jesus as so many people try and do in Jesus's life. And so turn to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, and we'll read there. It says this, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took the two, uh, sorry, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Again, as we study your word, I pray that today just any words that I have to speak would fall away and that you would just speak to us through your truth of your word, Lord, that we would learn more about you, about us, that we would be able to follow you more closely and have a correct worldview that glorifies you and encourages us as we walk closer to you. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. Amen. So here we have this this passage here with the lawyer asking Jesus and Jesus telling him the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of us, if you've grown up again in the church, this is a very familiar passage. Even if outside of the church, many people have heard things like love your neighbor as yourself and things like that, where this passage definitely draws a lot of that. But there are some practical points within this passage that we can draw out that actually... The, the story of the Good Samaritan is certainly part of this story, but there's actually some practical stuff even before we get to that that we want to look at. And first thing we want to look at is this lawyer and the trap that he kind of tries to set for Jesus. The man in verse 25, he comes to Jesus and asks him a question about inheriting eternal life. He says this, he says, it's, it says the lawyer stood up and tested him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit in, in ter, eternal life? It's widely agreed upon that this question was not sincere and that the lawyer was not trying to um, actually ask about eternal life, but he was trying to trap Jesus into uh, repudiating or, or contradicting the law 
at some point in his answer. So what the law has to say about eternal life. And so we see these types of questions even today. We see it regularly in our day, uh, day-to-day lives. There are people who genuinely ask about God, who desire to know him, who desire to get closer to him, who want to know how do I follow him? Um, even outside of the faith, there are people that ask those genuine questions. And then there are those who try and trap us as Christians or try and trap Jesus in the, in the long run um, into contradicting ourselves or trying to outwit us or whatever that may be. For instance, um, a question that comes up often is, that, that I get often, is about the dinosaurs. Well, well the... What does the Bible say about dinosaurs and man living with dinosaurs and men and dinosaurs and all these other things? And did they actually exist or did they not or, or all these other things? It's, it's asked, this question normally, normally is asked by people who really think that Christians are ignorant in our belief system, whether it's old earth or young earth. We, we are ignorant to what God has created and and whether or not we believe that dinosaurs and man lived lived together, those kinds of things, the answer doesn't matter to them. They're not interested in the answer. They're interested in in us as Christians contradicting or what they think they know about science and and the age of the earth and things like that. They're trying to trick us into um, being (laughs) sounding ignorant of what's going on. And so so it's interesting because these questions come up, and that's just one example, but these questions come up where, where people are trying to uh, make Christianity look foolish or, or trying to uh, get a one-up or I knew I couldn't trust you or, or whatever it may be. Uh, they don't really care about the answer. And, and the answer that uh, Christians have to give doesn't matter to them. They, they just do not care what the, that was. And so this lawyer was concerned with how to earn his salvation. He wasn't concerned as much about the answer that Jesus was going to give. He was more concerned about whether Jesus was, was going to contradict what the law already said. And so he was, he was asking about this earning of his salvation, the, the way he could earn his way to heaven and earn eternal life. That's the, that word inherit and what must I do to inherit eternal life. Works-based salvation is, is popular then and it was popular now. It's, it's common uh, for what we see. It's also common. It was common for them as well, especially within the Jewish religion. A lot of things were works-oriented and in our salvation or in their salvation, it was based on what they did. And so this man was genuinely, in, in this sense, he was genuinely trying to ask, <laughs> What must I do to be saved? This question. And, and he was probably thinking that his status as a lawyer of the law, as a teacher of the law, um, or his good deeds would earn that eternal life. And how common is that for even us today to think that the things that we do will earn us favor in the sight of God. Oftentimes we refer to it as brownie points, right? When we do something good and expect something like almost good karma. And, and there's not a lot of difference between those two points of view and, and, and this works-based salvation. Well, if I do good things, then I will inherit or earn in eternal life. And, and as tempting as it is to believe that our work here on earth 
will earn that eternal life, will earn us those brownie points. When we read scripture, it's clear that God has, has made a different plan of salvation from before time began. That it was never going to be about what we did. And that's, as we're going to talk about, it's kind of part of the design. It's, it's built into this whole plan, is this, this idea that salvation is not based on worth. Turn to, your, turn to Ephesians in your Bibles. <clears throat> Ephesians 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved, uh, verse 8 of chapter 2 in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This idea of not of yourselves, it's not something that you can earn. It's not something that is coming out of, say, myself. It's not coming out of Andrew. It's coming out of God. The salvation that God gives is a gift to us. Nothing that we can do can earn that. And the point of that being so that is so that we can't do what this lawyer is trying to do right here, which is boast of himself boast of the good things that he has done. Acts 16 uh, verses 30 and 31 says this, it's the, it's the jailer that's talking to uh, Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, uh, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. This idea of belief being the thing that saves us, you could say, I guess, that that's doing something, but it's not based on uh, it's not based on the brownie points. It's not based on whether or not I am helping little old ladies across the street, or uh, giving to the poor, or going to church, or these serving at the church. These things are not earning me salvation. They're not doing anything for my salvation. My salvation is already taken care of in the work of Jesus Christ, as we're going to talk about in a minute. It's already done. It's already, there's, there's nothing I can do to add to that. And so when we try and earn it, we're actually, um, we're, we're actually um, almost insulting the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross because he already did it in full. He paid the price in full. There's nothing we can do to add to it, and there's nothing that we can do to take away from that gift. And so when we try and do something in order to earn that salvation, it's really actually insulting. It cannot be earned. Eternal life cannot be earned. And, and, and this lawyer was thinking that he could earn it. He was, he was under the... He was under the impression that if he just did these good deeds, then he'd be good. And Jesus was ready to show him that, that this was not earnable, that this, this eternal life was not something that he could earn. Jesus was going to show him this through the answer um, that, that really answered him in his profession. So this is a lawyer, and Jesus is going to ask him a question about the law, something that he would have been very familiar with. Again, this is not like a lawyer that we would see here in our day and age where he's carrying around a briefcase and going to litigation. No, this would be a lawyer of the law. So he's actually a study, a student of the law. He spent time looking at the Old Testament and knowing the ins and outs of what the Old Testament was saying when it said, do this, don't do this. So he was very familiar with what it would have meant to obey the law of God. And so Jesus actually answers him this. And so he, in verse 26, we've made it a whole verse. <laughs> in verse 26, he said to him, uh, what is written in the law and what is your reading of it? He begins to answer the lawyer 
in terms that someone in his profession would relate to and understand, which was the law. What is your reading of the law? What does the law say about, about how to inherit eternal life? So this would have been something that, that uh, very is close to this lawyer's heart. And he says in verse 27, he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer ans answers Jesus in the proper way. This is actually the right answer, as we're going to see in just a second. Jesus actually confirms this is the thing, this is the correct answer. That, that to earn eternal life, this is what you must do. And he quotes, the lawyer quotes from what, we, what Jewish people would call the Shema. So this was a few passages um, taken from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. We'll go there in just a second. Deuteronomy 11, uh, Numbers 15. In fact, go, go ahead and go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. This is the biggest part of the Shema. Most of, most of what he quotes is actually here. We're just going to read it so that we can understand that he, he, under, he was aware of what the law said. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse, uh, let's start in verse 4. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Almost a direct quote. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and in Numbers chapter 15, the, this, is, this Shema is basically uh, restated in more words or less words. And so it's, it's basically three places where they find this. But this is something that Jewish people quote this in their sleep. This is something that is very, very near and dear to their heart. And, and as it should be. I mean, it should even, in my opinion, be near and dear to our heart. But you'll notice the language of binding the law on your heart, meditating on it day and night, teaching it to your children, sitting in it, walking with it, <laughs> interacting with this constantly. And, and so this is what he quotes to Jesus as being the way to in inherit eternal life and how he reads it. And again, it's important to note that Jesus con confirms that this is the right answer. The lawyer was confident in this. And it's important to know that he's not wrong in his answer. So verse 28 says this, uh, and he said to him, verse 28, sorry, of Luke chapter 10 again, says, and he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Jesus says, you're right. Now all you have to do is do it. Now all you have to do is live that, uh, and you can inherit eternal life. You can earn eternal life. It seems simple and almost contradictory to what we think because, again, those of us who are really familiar with Scripture, are, we should be uncomfortable with the idea that somebody could earn eternal life because we've been taught the opposite. But Jesus is saying here, yes, you can earn eternal life if you do this, if you do this perfectly. And here's... Jesus saying that it's possible, and yet when we look closer, we see that it's far from easy, it's not simple, and in reality, it's impossible for someone to live up to such a standard of, of what this lawyer says, of loving the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, 
all your strength and with all your mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is impossible to do because it's such a high standard. Perfection is the standard of holiness. Nothing less, nothing more, I guess. Uh, I had an old boss that used to say, you know, when we would, when we would finish a, a construction project or anything like that, he would just look at it and he would say, well, perfect is good enough. And, and it's this idea that, you know, perfection is that standard that we look for. Um, and so this is the standard that God looks for as well. James 2.10 says this about the law. Okay, this is, this is about keeping the law, keeping the Ten Commandments. It says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, we won't get into the idea of all the hundreds of different laws that the Jewish people had. I think it was over 600 and, 612, 613, I, th I believe. But they, we won't even get into that. Let's just talk about the Ten Commandments, which everybody kind of knows, especially within the Jewish culture. They would have been familiar, very familiar with the Ten Commandments. What James is saying here is even if you break one point of the Ten Commandments, just one of those Ten Commandments, then you're guilty of breaking all of them. You know, there's, there's no, well, I did really good in this department, but I didn't do so great in this department, but because I did so good in these other departments, that carries this one up. That's not how it works. If you've broken one, you've broken them all, and perfection now is shattered. Perfection is an interesting um, thought because we cannot start being perfect. Well, we can, but it doesn't do anything. You have to have been perfect from the time you were born until the time you are dead. It's not enough for me as a 30-something-year-old man to start living a perfect life that would not earn me uh, salvation because I've lived 30 years of imperfectness. And so it's the same with anybody else. If you are, we are born into sin here. And if we are born into that sin, it means we have, we have stumbled in one point and we've broken all of the commandments. Jesus was pointing out to this lawyer that everyone is guilty of not being perfect. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He was affirming that this lawyer could not even hope to earn eternal life because all have sinned, because all have fallen short. He could not hope to live that perfect life. This law that he was so confident in, in quoting back to Jesus, the Shema, which many Jewish people are very confident in, many Christians are even confident in, he was quoting it back to him. And just because he was confident in what the law said, the understanding was, well, you obviously don't understand that you have to keep it. It's not just about knowing the law, it's about actually keeping the law. And that's what Jesus was saying here. And so Jesus was not actually affirming that one can earn eternal life. In fact, he was saying quite the opposite. He was pointing out that it is impossible to earn eternal life because that's the way it was set up. The law uh, that this lawyer had dedicated his entire life to studying and following was defined or sorry, designed for a purpose that the lawyer had missed. He had, he had missed this one point, and that's this. In Galatians 3, 24 and 25, it says this. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. You see, the law, in other translations, it says, is a schoolmaster 
There is a purpose that the law was designed for, and the, the designing of the law, the law of the Old Testament, was specifically given to show us that we couldn't and we cannot earn our salvation at all. It was very purposely put there so that we would see we cannot do it. And that's the point of the law. The point of the law is to bring us to a point where we understand we need a Savior. Jesus stated that he came to fulfill the law in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. And in that fulfillment, he is our hope, not the law itself. We do not place our faith in the law. We put our faith in Jesus Christ because he fulfills the law because we cannot. We have to, if we cannot fulfill the law, if it's impossible for me to be able to fill the law, fulfill the law, then I must need a savior. And if I need a savior, I need to look to Christ as the perfect example, as the perfect sacrifice, as the perf perfect fulfillment of that law so that I can <laughs> really cling to him and all of my hope is in him. His statement of affirmation to the lawyer about this lawyer's answer being correct was one that was designed to underline for the lawyer that he couldn't earn eternal life, but that there had to be a gift given from God to us for salvation. Eternal life is completely with, outside of our grasp because we fall in the law, because we fail in the law. But with Jesus Christ coming to fulfill the law, we can cling to him and he fulfills that law. And by this awesome gift, we are then covered from the punishment of breaking the law, which is death. And we are instead given eternal life, which is what this lawyer was asking about. And it's interesting, again, that the lawyer wasn't necessarily looking for all of this, and yet Jesus gave it to him anyway. You see, that's what makes grace and mercy the gift that we hope for. That's what makes God's, well, Christ's sacrifice the beautiful thing that we live towards here. And so here's this answer from Jesus, and, and this would have been very clear to the lawyer and to everyone else who was standing around that Jesus was saying that you cannot do this. <laughs> and that's why he immediately goes into verse 29. He goes into trying to justify himself. But, but he, wanting to justify himself in verse 29, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So here's this, this lawyer who's kind of been proven his, his, the study of the law that he has dedicated his life to. It's not a failure or anything, but he, he's understanding a little more clearly that he cannot be justified in his own, in his own works. And so he continues con to try and find loopholes in what Jesus is saying, hoping again that he'll contradict himself and that maybe he can pounce on that. And so he tries, he tries to do the same thing that we often try to do whether it's some point in our lives or even daily, we try to justify ourselves to look better, to feel better, to, to make it so that we don't need Jesus, um, to make it possible for eternal life, to make, to make the blow a little softer. And it, it, this verse here shows us that the, the heart of the lawyer is, is not to actually follow the law, to actually submit to the law, He's trying to find ways around the law, and he wants to find that loophole that allows him to continue 
to live his life the way he wants to live it and not the way that Jesus expressed and, and desired him to live it here in, in the earlier verses. This is still common in our modern era. Um, people try to find loopholes um, to not have to submit to what the Word of God says. Uh, we try and change God's Word to make it more palatable and con uh, conforming uh, to what we believe we feel is correct. Look at any social justice issue that people try and change the Word of God to say one thing when it, when it obviously states the opposite. And we can use words like, well, the Bible was written so long ago and it's not relevant anymore. Um, we need to update it. Um, God was writing to a different culture, so now we're, at, we're a different culture, and so the Word of God needs to adapt and change. These are all loopholes that people are trying to find so that they don't actually have to submit to what the Word of God says. So this is what the lawyer is doing here. He knows what the Word of God says. He knows what Jesus is saying is truth. He knows that the law is impossible to hold. Uh, and if you're guilty of one point, you're guilty of all points. He knows all of these things. And so he immediately tries to say, well, but who's my neighbor really? Uh, who, who, do I, who do I really have to you know, love in order to do this? Because uh, specifically for the Jewish people, <laughs> they, they feel and felt like they were loners in this, like they were kind of on an island a little bit and that they, it was them against the world. And in some cases, they were completely correct. Um, but in this case, he's trying to, again, justify continuing to live his life the way he wants to, not the way God wants him to. And so here's the thing. God's word either has the ultimate authority in our lives to guide and direct us, regardless of how it makes us feel. And that's an important point. Regardless of how it makes me feel, it's still God's word. Or it isn't God who is in control, but us. If, if God's word does not have the authority to, to conform us into his image, to change us into his image, even in the points that we disagree with or, or have a hard time understanding, if, if it's not about what God wants, if it's not about what his word commands, well, then it's not God who's in control. It's, it's me. It's what I want. It's what makes me comfortable. And it's interesting to me because many people who would... Uh, and Pastor Rob and I have talked about this a lot. The, the people who try and change God's word, it's very convenient that all of the things that they disagree with or that God's word disagrees with in their lives, those are the things that don't actually, those aren't God's word. The things that they agree with are fine, but the stuff that they disagree with, well, that's obviously irrelevant to our culture. We need to update those things. And it just so happens to be the things that I want to continue doing in my sin that, that we, need to, we need to update that in Scripture. It's just convenient because that, that in and of itself shows me that we try to change God's Word for our purposes to try and make us feel better about the life that we're living. And so this is exactly what the lawyer is trying to do here where he's saying, well, who's my neighbor? He's trying to say, well... I, all that stuff is fine, but, but you tell me who I'm supposed to love. We try to be God in our own lives by trying to, to see God in a different way that's more comfortable for us. But as we often say here at Pathway, uh, He is God and we are not. 
And so we don't always know why he does certain things. But all of this leads to Jesus going into this story of the Good Samaritan, where uh, in verse 30, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounding him and departing him, leaving him half dead. And then we see a priest come by and walk on the other side. The priest who is supposed to take care of the people, who is supposed to be the 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 person who actually reaches out to the people and helps the most, and then a Levite, even more so, a person that should be helping his brother, his Jewish brother, coming out of this and, and, and assisting them in this need. And there's a lot of different commentators that talk about a lot of different reasons why these guys didn't stop. The truth is we don't see a lot of reasoning, even if, the, even if they are right, we don't see it here in scripture, so I don't wanna assume that we know. But then we have in verse 33, a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he starts dressing this guy's wounds and he starts giving him oil and wine and, and, and putting him on his own animal to ride. And he takes him to a hotel and, and sets him up to be taken care of until he gets better. Now, just for... <laughs> For information's sake, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along very well. In fact, they hated each other. And so this was a guy who everybody would have thought would have been the one to walk on the opposite side of this guy, and yet he was the one who stopped and helped. And so Jesus shares this story with the lawyer, talking about how this, this man was in need, and his friends walked by while the enemy, the hated one, helped him. And the lawyer was able to see that we are not better than anyone else. I am not above anyone else, and no one else is above me necessarily. We are, we are on the same playing field, and all of us, again, Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are in this desperate need of a Savior. Everyone. And so we might as well be, quote-unquote, neighborly to each other. All of humanity, except for Jesus, is dead in their sin, myself included, and in need of a Savior. Jesus was able to point that out to the lawyer and us as well. We were able to see that our neighbor is everyone, and, and that's, uh, that may be a bit broad, <laughs> but our neighbor is the person that we need to help. Our neighbor is the person who we need to reach out to. And so Jesus isn't saying, well, you know, the people that you hate specifically, those are the people. However, he is saying that. He's also not saying the, the friends that you have are your neighbors. He's not saying that specifically, even though those are the neighbors. What he's saying is the, the neighbors that we are to love. When, when this man was trying to justify himself, the neighbors that we are to love is everyone who is like us. Sinners in need of a savior, in need of someone to come and reach out and help. And Jesus was able to point this out to the lawyer. Everyone is our neighbor. And this sounds very kumbaya, and I understand that. And, and so I'm trying to be careful, but, but everyone is our neighbor, and we are to love and care for all people. And we're not to, to try and justify ourselves in our sin or in our righteousness. We are not to try and justify ourselves to make it so that I do not need to help a neighbor or that I do not need to reach out and help someone else. We are to honor Christ and his sacrifice for us on the cross. He came in order to fulfill the law so that we can be freed from that. So that not only can we 
uh, go out and help our neighbors and go out and love others and go out and change the world for him. We are to glorify him in our lives and how we do that. And one of the ways in which we do that is we love one another. We care for one another. We reach out to one another. And this is exactly what the lawyer was trying to avoid in his questioning. He was looking for an easy out. He was looking for a loophole to get around having to actually obey the law and actually, and actually submit himself to God's word and God's authority in his life. He was trying to find a way to, can I, can I pay it? Can I, can I earn it by doing good works? And if Jesus had just come out and said, um, you know, serve at a soup kitchen three times a year um, and, and give to the poor, and, and you'll have earned eternal life. Well, there would be something that I'm sure many people, including this lawyer, would have grabbed onto and hung onto. But Jesus is giving them examples of saying, you have to do the hard thing and reach out to your enemies and love them. You have to reach out to the people who, in, who are in need and love them. You actually have to do it. And you can't just, <laughs> you can't just hope that they will be okay. And, and just assume that they are okay. And that's what we have to take away from this passage as well, is that we can't just hope that our neighbor knows the Lord. We can't just hope that the person who is next to us at work or next to us literally where we live, we can't just hope that they know the truth of Jesus Christ and that they are following him. We need to go to them. We need to reach out to them. We need to work with them and see them through whatever trial they're going through so that we can help and so that we can glorify Christ with our lives. Now, this does not earn us eternal life. Jesus Christ's sacrifice is the only way and we are to believe on him and we will be saved. And so today, it is a good idea to ask the Lord, have I actually submitted myself to you? Have I actually died to myself and my desires and my wants and my justifications? And have I actually picked up my cross and followed him in order that he would be glorified and that others would come to know him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had. I pray that you would just convict our hearts and help us to see you more clearly. Lord, that we would not try and find ways out of following you, but that we would purposefully steer our ship into you, knowing that we are going to have to change, knowing that we are going to have to die to certain belief systems or thoughts or feelings about how, what it means to, to earn our salvation. Lord, I pray that we would take encouragement that you understand and that you're with us the whole time. And Lord, that your plan is better than ours. We love you so much and we thank you in your name.